Stargate Voyager. I think we're looking again at a lost technology. And it was this ancient apocalypse 12,800 years ago that wiped that from the human memory banks. Why were these ancient elongated skulled peoples or humanoids of Malta living underground? Now I believe we're talking prior to 9700 BC for the original construction of the Sphinx. And they were what some people have called giants, probably no more than seven to eight feet tall. And those giants have been pulled out of American maps. Whether it's the colossal statue heads that have been unearthed, to all the strange artifacts you've been showing in the museums, to some of the strange features they seem to possess, the more I learn about the Olmec culture, uh, really the more fascinated I become. Well, it's great to have author, explorer, a filmmaker, Timothy Alberino back uh, for another episode. And Tim, it seems like, man, you are everywhere these days. Uh, giving your analysis on all the UFO, latest UFO news, disclosure news that really is, is happening like never before, it seems like. So I want to ask you, do you think you could have timed the release of your book, Birthright, uh, any better than you did not so long ago? Well, it's good to be back with you, Derek. Um, it does seem somewhat providential that I released that book back in 2020 before things really started to heat up with uh, with the the UFO phenomenon obviously 2017 we had the Nimitz incident and the New York Times publication and all of that but uh, that was just the opening salvo to what we're seeing now and I'm I'm quite happy that I got out in front of it and and to some extent predicted some of what we're seeing right now in terms of the way that the phenomenon is being presented uh, the context of the phenomenon in that it is it's being framed as a national security threat and 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 also things happening outside of ufology uh, in the realm of in the realm of the technocracy and uh, the unfolding of transhumanism and, and things that sometimes get lost in the fray because we're so focused on the political environment and then also on disclosure and ufos those two things are really taking up most of the news and then of course the the sort of climate natural disaster type things that are happening all over the world as well but but uh certainly um all of this is unfolding in the manner that i i foresaw let's put it that way so far so far yeah i don't think you could have timed it any better if you don't have timothy's book birthright get it uh, you can get it on Amazon or his website, timothyalberino.com. But what I love about your book, Tim, is you take people way back to the beginning. You know, you, you get into the origins of time, the book of Genesis and the Nephilim, lost ancient technology, and you bring it all the way full circle to today to what you think is happening with this UFO phenomenon, and it is fascinating. So get the book. So, so I'm really looking forward to asking you about the Bob Lazar a story because I know you followed that close now that we've got a we're this far removed with all this disclosure I want to kind of go back to that obviously I want to ask you about the UFO phenomenon all this disclosure I think one of the things you you and me and people like us love about megalithic architecture is we believe you know there was some form of lost technology employed to construct right and so 
What are your thoughts on the intersection between ancient megalithic tech and what some might call forbidden tech when it comes to these uh, UFO or UAP crafts? Um, and I say forbidden because obviously the powers that be who may be reverse engineering don't want us to know about the tech. So do you think there's an intersection there? Well, let's begin by acknowledging that we barely understand physics. In the compendium, in the compendium of, of, of all there is to understand about the universe, the way the universe works, the mechanics, the physics of the universe, we actually understand very little. We understand enough to make all of the accessories that, that, that we have today in modern society, which are mainly taking advantage of electromagnetism. We, we've, we've made great use of fossil fuels and explosions and, and we've been able to devise combustion engines from these, from this understanding of, of, of these explosions that we can create these micro, micro explosions inside of an engine. So we've made, we've made some very important and remarkable discoveries as it pertains to physics but we're, but we're just getting started. And so that's the first thing that we need to understand. So when we look at, let's call it alien technology, what we're looking at is a, is a much more comprehensive understanding of the way the universe works, the, the physics of the universe, a much more comprehensive understanding and play than we currently have. And that may also be the case to some extent when we look back to the past. When we look back in the past, we may be looking at some level of knowledge that was lost. Maybe not to the same degree that, and certainly not to the same degree that we are, we are witnessing the UFO phenomenon. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there are various paths, technological paths that one can take when developing technology. Again, I mentioned electromagnetism. That's one. You can use, harness electromagnetism to do certain things. You can take advantage of, as I mentioned, combustion in fossil fuels to do certain things. But those are, those are very particular, let's say, tributaries along this river of technological development. There are others. We are barely, we are just beginning to understand sonic resonance, for example. We're, we don't even exactly know what gravity is yet. Uh, or what creates the force of gravity. So there are all kinds of, of technological streams that are connected to this river that we have not explored, that maybe the ancients did. Maybe the ancients stumbled upon some knowledge or were taught some things that allowed them to make some developments that, that in some regards are more advanced than what we have today in modern society. Now, that's not to say that they would have been more advanced in, in every regard. That's not to say that they would have had laptops and Lamborghinis. That's not to say that they would have had the internet. But they might have had, they might have been able to harness the power of the sun, for example, to create lasers, which I think they could have. Actually, all you need are parabolic lenses to do that, to cut stone. Uh, they might have had a knowledge of chemistry that we've forgotten over time. In other words, a way to submerge large stones in a chemical bath to make them 
pliable, to make them soft so that they can be molded, or at least to some degree molded and fit together and then hardened, right? These are technologies that aren't necessarily more advanced than what we have today. They're just different paths. They're just different offshoots of things that we're kind of familiar with, like lasers, using the power of the sun, focusing it into a laser. You know, there's nothing on the planet, for example. There is no substance on planet Earth that the sun cannot cut through. If you can focus the sun into a concentrated beam, a laser, you can literally cut through anything on Earth. And it doesn't take advanced technology to do that. All it takes is parabolic lenses, as I mentioned. If you, can, if you can fabricate a parabolic lens that is highly polished out of bronze or copper or gold or silver, then you can harness the power of the sun. You can weaponize it and you can use it as a cutting tool. That's one thing. That's just one, one thing. Now, whether the ancients were doing that is anyone's guess. Um, there's also, I mentioned... Um, Sonic resonance. I'm not sure if that's the, I'm trying to think of the actual technical term and you probably know it. Um, acoustic resonance. I'm sorry. Acoustic re resonance. Resonance. That's what I'm trying to get at. Acoustic resonance. The, 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 we know, for example, we know that you can levitate matter with sound. That's known. That's a known fact. In fact, there's all kinds of experiments all over the internet that you can look at where people are levitating objects of various sizes just through sound waves. So if that can be magnified, and if our understanding of that can be amplified, then, then you could conceivably be in a situation, let's call it a low-tech situation, in which you can harness the power of the human vocal cords to, if not outright levitate stone, at least to perhaps levitate them enough to make them to where they're much more maneuverable, right? I'm not saying that that's what the ancients did. I'm just saying that that is within the realm of possibility. Now, we don't currently know how that would have been done or could have been done, but that's not to say that it wasn't done because the theory is sound that it could be done. That's the point. It could be done. You, they could have harnessed the sun. They could have harnessed... Um, sound in ways that we we are just beginning to understand now they could have harnessed the power of of uh, 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 of the plants right the utility of plants that we have not really discovered yet that when you take these plants and you make certain chemical compounds they're able to as i said soften stone so so are these things more advanced than what we do today. I wouldn't say they were more advanced, but I would say that those are advanced concepts. But yet those are concepts that do not require a whole lot of other advancements to exist, right? For example, this technology that we're using right now, the internet, before you can get the internet, you have to have a dozen, at least a dozen other advances in technological advances before you can get to this point, correct? You can't just... You can't just create the internet without first harnessing electromagnetism. However, that's not the case if you have an understanding of the chemical compositions of these plants and combining them together to create this solution. That's a one-step advancement that would allow you to soften stone, right? Again, I'm going to go back to the sun. 
a parabolic lens. That's a one step. That's just a one step forward, being able to understand that you can harness the sun and then creating that lens to do so. You don't, it doesn't require a bunch of other technological developments around it in order for that to exist. And so when you look into the past, if you think in terms of these simple scientific advancements that are very powerful and they would have required knowledge, right? But they would not have required all of the infrastructure that we have today to create the internet. They would have been very simple, powerful technologies. So that's kind of the way that I think of the ancient world when I think of an, an advanced civilization. That's what I mean when I say advanced. Now, having said that, let me also say that I subscribe to the notion that the ancients were helped, were aided with some of this knowledge from, let's call them non-human entities that gave them the knowledge to make some of these advancements and that th these entities, and I would go so far as to say, and their progeny, their hybrid progeny, were indeed in possession of the kind of technology we see on display in the UFO phenomenon. So you have both of those things in play. You would have a priest class, and I think we talked about this last time. You would have a, a priest class, right? Let's call it an extraterrestrial priest class and their hybrid offspring. Of course, we're talking about the Nephilim here. That would be in possession of advanced technology comparable to what, we, what we're dealing with in, in the UFO phenomenon. And the rest of civilization would be probably a Bronze Age level civilization, but also in possession of knowledge that would allow them to do remarkable things, right? I think that paints a picture of the antediluvian world. and and gives us at least a framework within we can understand how some of these apparently seemingly impossible feats were achieved when we look at some of the megalithic structures and also some other things, not just the megaliths. So that's sort of my, my, my general survey of what we call an advanced prehistoric civilization that was destroyed in a cataclysm. That's a great segue into talking about some of this modern or forbidden tech. Um, and again, to me, that's kind of where these two topics collide is we're talking about technology, whether it's ancient or this forbidden type. Um, so, and again, get Tim's book because he, he weaves all these topics together of the ancient pre-Diluvian golden age world to what is happening seems to be happening today with the ufo phenomenon so i want to get into that now um i know you followed the bob lazar story close and this is a story i was always intrigued by uh and obviously lately we've had this these whistleblowers grush uh, and others coming forward about the government um collecting non-human craft reverse engineering them but way before these guys, Lazar was like one of the first, right? So uh, I would just kind of love to hear any thoughts um, now that we're this far removed from when Lazar first came out in the 80s or was it early 90s and broke the story. What are your thoughts? And is, is his story as relevant today as it ever was? Well, first of all, I'd like to affirm Bob Lazar's story. I believe he absolutely was telling the truth. Absolutely. And I think that Grush's revelations and those of... Mr. Graves and Mr. Fravor 
um, do indeed affirm that Bob Lazar was telling the truth. And there's many, many, many reasons why I believe he was telling the truth. And I think all the attempts to debunk his story have fallen flat and uh, have themselves been debunked. Bob Lazar is a very interesting character in that he came forward with these with these incredible revelations before the media was ever willing to take the UFO phenomenon seriously. You see, the situation has changed. So when Bob Lazar came out with his allegations, he had no support group. He had no allies in the media except for one man, George Knapp. Um, he had definitely, there was no pathway for a UFO whistleblower in place. That certainly didn't exist. And so um, he really, he really, he, coming forward in the way he did, he really exposed himself not only to the potential that he would be killed or disappeared by, let's say, the government slash um, some of these contractors, Defense Department contractors, but he also subjected himself to an incredible amount of ridicule in the media. Because again, the media was, was not at a point where they were even willing to discuss UFOs in any kind of serious manner. It was a joke to the media, again, except for uh, this, this old school investigative reporter down in Las Vegas named George Knapp. And, and so that was a very different environment back then than what we have today. And yet Bob's testimony rings truer today than ever. And I think that the details, the, intric the intricacies of, of, of Lazar's testimony are sometimes lost in all of the controversy surrounding his story and all of the debate on whether or not the story is actually true. Well, when you dig into the intricacies of the story and you compare some of the things that are being said and examined with, for example, the work of Leonard Stringfield, who details dozens of crash retrieval operations and talks a little bit about some of the technology that might have been derived from them. And then, of course, Colonel Corso. And you start to sort of cross-reference these guys who I would consider credible sources. Colonel Corso was both uh, releasing, um, was releasing good information with some mis- and disinformation, purposely mixing it in there to protect himself. Although he did publish a manuscript, um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, he did actually publish a manuscript in which he just told the truth, but his book had some disinfo in it to protect himself. But everything these guys have said, Colonel Corso's manuscript, his unpublished manuscript, uh, Bob Lazar's testimony, the work of Leonard Stringfield, and, and dozens of others, when you strip them of the controversy and you look at the substance, you have the same thing. You have the, essentially you have the same story. In Bob Lazar's case. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He was working on what he calls a sports model UFO, which was a saucer, not a particularly, a particularly large saucer, but a functioning one, because many of the crash retrievals that we have are non-functioning. We still harvest components from them or we try and fix them to the degree that we can. But, but I think it's a rare occasion when we actually get our hands on functioning technology. And in this case, Lazar was working on a, a functional craft, again, which he designated as a sports model because of its sleek design. And Lazar actually goes into quite a few details. First of all, that the craft was manufactured to accommodate very small people, three to four foot tall people. Well, obviously we're talking about the grays here. Again, which you run across in so many other stories with the gentleman that I've already named. So you're looking at a craft that was manufactured by and for the grays. Um, and Lazar gets very specific in regard to the physics, which is what I really love about Lazar's story because Lazar himself is a, is a physicist. And he talks about one of the most important components of this whole reverse engineering story. And that is the exotic material element 115. That is the power source or the critical component for the reactor that is powering so many of these craft, if not all of them. I mean, there's some claims that element 115 is, is, is the critical factor in every single shape and size of UFO out there. That's truly alien technology. There's some dispute with that. Who can know? But certainly element 115 is, is being incorporated into many of the craft. And element 115 is a piece of exotic matter in that it's not found on planet Earth. So the greys are getting it elsewhere. They're getting it somewhere else besides planet Earth. Who knows where they're fabricating this stuff? But you can't reproduce it on Earth. We don't have any stable isotopes on Earth. We can produce an an unstable isotope of element 115. I believe it's called Moscavian or Moscavium. I don't remember exactly the, the name of it on the periodic table, but it's there now. And, and, and we can create an unstable isotope that lasts for fractions of a second. But that's it. We cannot condense. We cannot create a, a stable element 115 isotope with which we can do anything practical. It's just there one moment and gone the next. So element 115 is critical to the function of at least some of these craft. And the reason why it's critical is because it has very anomalous gravitational properties. One of the things, according to Lazar, that Element 115 does is it throws off a, an antiparticle, antimatter. And so we know because of CERN, for example, we do this all the time at CERN, we can create antimatter. 
we can't create a whole lot of, a whole lot of it, but we can create antimatter particles at CERN. And we know that if you take antimatter and matter, that that is one of the, the collision. Antimatter and matter are always going to collide and, and annihilate each other. And that that reaction is, is, is the most powerful reaction that we know of, that we can actually create. Um, and I think that's why China is trying to build its, its atom smasher, which is going to be 10 times the size of the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, which I visited. And I think that what China wants isn't necessarily just the science. China wants the weaponry. China wants to create antimatter bombs. Antimatter bombs are much more efficient than nuclear bombs because you can bomb a city and then not have residual fallout, the, the radioactive problem after you detonate a, a nuclear bomb. With antimatter, you don't have that problem. You just have this incredibly massive explosion that is many times more powerful than an atomic explosion, than a nuclear explosion. And so the element 115 allows for this matter-antimatter reaction to occur within the reactor. And that creates this tremendous amount of energy with which gravity waves can be generated. And this is all of, according to, to Lazar. Gravity waves can be generated. And if you can create ja gravity waves, then you can bend space-time. And so essentially, if you can bend and manipulate the fabric of space, then you can do all, in short, you can do all of the fantastical maneuvering that we see with, with UFOs. It accounts for everything we see. There would be, you would not have the G-force inside of these craft because you would not be operating within the atmosphere. Rather, the atmosphere would be bending around your craft. So you're no longer being affected by the atmosphere. And that's why those of us who've had close encounters with UFOs have noticed, like as myself, have noticed that the craft are unaffected by the atmosphere. My experience with the UFO at, at close proximity was on a particularly windy day. And my car was being rocked as it was descending in front of my car. Everybody, I'm sure, is aware of that story by now. And, and one of the first things I noticed was that this craft was wholly unaffected by the atmosphere, by the wind. Can you just, for people that might not have heard the story, just give us the quick version of it? Okay, very quickly, I was with my brother-in-law, and, I, and, I, and there's a little bit of backstory that's, I think, important. My brother-in-law, I used to go over his house. He lived down the road from me when I lived in Cleveland, Ohio. I would go over his house, and we would lift weights together in his basement. And oftentimes, my brother's very mechanically minded and, and is somewhat of an engineer, and oftentimes... He and I would discuss precisely this, Bob Lazar's story. We would discuss the, 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 the kind of technology that might be in operation with these advanced aerial, um, with, these, with these advanced aerospace vehicles, these UFOs. This was often the topic of our conversation. Again, even specifically Bob Lazar and some of these other stories, Colonel Corso and so forth. And so one day we're, in his basement, working out, probably in the midst of a conversation revolving around Lazar or something like that. And my brother-in-law wants us wants to go and get some some supplements from the GNC store in the next town over called Brook Park, where I happened to grow up. I was I grew up in Brook Park, Ohio, and so it was 
I don't remember the exact date. It was in February. It was very cold and it was very windy. And it was about, mm, I would say, seven o'clock or so. The store was closing at nine-ish, I think. And so we were rushing over there to get to the GNC store. Now, the GNC store is located in what's called the Brookhaven Shopping Complex. I used to ride my bike around there when I was a kid. Very familiar with it. And it was a strip mall. And so long story short, we're pulling up to the strip mall. It's probably about eight o'clock at night. And we notice that as we're, as we're coming to the light before you go into the parking lot, we notice that there's this craft, this thing hovering above the corner store. And we knew, we thought immediately, we thought it must be a Chinook or a Black Hawk helicopter because that was roughly the size of this object. And it was, and had very bright lights on it. And there's a, National Guard base not far from there. So the first thing that came to our mind was, oh, look, the National Guard is running a drill. That's literally what we thought. So we rolled down our windows instinctively to listen for the whipping of the blades in the air. Surely we'd have, we would have heard if it were a helicopter. We heard nothing. And that was our first clue. And we sort of looked at each other thinking, this something odd is going on here. So I pulled into the driveway. And I immediately, I pulled in just to the middle of the driveway. I didn't even park in a parking spot. There was hardly anybody in there anyway, in, the, in this big driveway, this big parking lot, rather. And I just threw the car into park because we were flabbergasted. This object, which apparently, which it became apparent very quickly that this object was not a helicopter. It didn't look like a helicopter. And it was certainly not operating like a helicopter. And there were no propellers and no noise. It hovered from over the, it lifted up from where it was above this corner store, and it glided effortlessly through the air right above and a little bit in front of my car so that I could see the entirety of the craft through my windshield. And then it began to descend over my car. And it got about to, I would say, 40 feet. I could have, I could have hit it with a rock. It was about 40 feet above and a little bit in front of my car. I could see the whole thing. My brother-in-law could see the whole thing. And we were just gaping at this craft with our jaws just hitting the floor. I mean, we, we, we didn't even, we were, we were awestruck. We didn't even, we couldn't even speak. We were just staring at this thing. And we got a good long look at it. And it was, uh, it was a, a delta or diamond-shaped craft, more like a diamond-shaped craft. It was about the size of a large helicopter, so like the size of a Chinook, maybe a little larger. It did not have wings. Rather, it had little rounded stubs. And it had a very particular kind of body armor, like that angular body armor like, uh, that is uh, reminiscent of the F-117 Nighthawk stealth fighter. But it wasn't that. But it was reminiscent. It was a it was a blackish, greenish. I couldn't tell in the at night if it was a dark green or a black or some some sort of a, a, a hue kind of in between. Um, but there were no propellers. There was no propulsion system to speak of. There was no exhaust, and there was no sound. And it was just hovering silently above my car for probably, I would say, a good minute, if not two. And that's a long time to just be staring at something. That is that is a very long time. I mean, I've had a handful of sightings, but I mean, and I've heard, you know, so many, you see all the videos that are blurry and far away, but I mean, this is one of the, actually the most fantastical 
UFO sighting story I've heard that it got that close to you where you could hit it with a rock. Yes. And, and so it was like we were in a daze because I sort of shook myself out of the daze and, and, and said to my brother-in-law, whose name is Tony, Tony, your phone, your phone. Because at the time he had a smartphone, I still had a flip phone. And what I'm trying to say to him is take a picture, take a video, get your phone out. And he was also kind of in a daze because he sort of shook his head and like looked around for a second. And then he starts scrambling for his phone. And he reaches for his phone. And of course, as he lifts it, he accidentally drops it. As he's lifting it up, it like it hit the dash or something and fell on the floor. And so he's on the floor, you know, bent over, scrambling for his phone. And I'm saying, Tony, get your phone up, get a picture. And as he's he finds his phone, he goes to lift it up to take a picture. The craft just lifts up into the air, turns on its axis very, very gently, very smoothly. And remember, my car is shaking back and forth. The wind is so furious at this moment, right? This craft is wholly unaffected by the atmosphere. And it just turns and starts to glide off. And we rushed out of the vehicle, and he lifted up his phone to try and take a picture or video. But by the time he got his phone up in the air, the craft was, had, had gone over the horizon. Um, so do you think this was a, uh, government reverse engineered craft, maybe from the base that they were testing out? Or do you think this is one of the originals? I think this was what I would describe as a hybridized craft that is ours. In other words, it's, it's fabricated by human beings, but it, but it, it is a combination of alien technology and conventional components. So it's us taking whatever technology we could derive from crash retrieval and then adding in conventional components. Because what I was getting at when I was talking about the Lazar thing is that we have, we can, we can, we figured out some of the physics, of course, not known to the public, but we've, we've figured out more physics than, than what you would learn even as a physicist at Harvard much more, I would say. We have more elements on the periodic table than anybody's aware of if you're not working in these black budget projects, these special access programs. Um, but we cannot reproduce the exotic material or harvest anymore at this point in time, at least to my knowledge. So we have this problem. We, 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 can, we can kind of do some of the stuff that these alien craft can do by by harnessing some of the technology through our understanding of this advanced physics, but we can't do exactly what they do. We create really shoddy versions of what they have um, that, again, have some of the capabilities and are certainly much more advanced than anything else, anybody else, is, any other humans are creating, but not nearly as advanced as the alien tech. So we're somewhere in the middle. These are hybrid craft utilizing both exotic and conventional components. In other words, alien and human components combined together to create these remarkable vehicles. And that's what I think I was looking at. Now, I did have the distinct sensation that I was supposed to see it and that it was waiting for me. And I can't explain that, but that's, I couldn't shake that feeling. Like who, whoever was, whoever was piloting this thing, and it probably was not even, I would imagine that it, 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 there, there might not even have been a human pilot. It might've just been piloted um remotely like a drone so anyway 
one of the problems that we have that I believe, and I think you can find this material out there in Lazar's story and other stories, and deduce that one of the problems that we're having in these reverse engineering programs is we can't create the kind of energy that the, let's say the aliens can generate because we cannot figure out how to duplicate their reactors. And this is one of the things in Lazar's story, and you can read about this in detail in his book, Dreamland. Um, the difficulty in trying to figure out how these reactors work, because they would separate the components of the reactor, Lazar and the, and the gentleman that was working with him on the project, and the components were communicating with each other. No wires and no um, energy fields or waves or signals that they could detect with their instrumentation. So they had no idea how these components of this alien technology were communicating with each other. This is one of the problems, fundamental problems that they had. They understood that the, that the reactor was creating antimatter, that there were antimatter reactions happening within the reactor and that that was creating enough, generating enough power to create gravity waves. Let's just say for the sake of uh, simplicity, that they were able to, through this tremendous amount of energy that generated through the reactor, they were able to manipulate gravity, generate and manipulate gravity. And again, when you manipulate, manipulate gravity, you're also, to some extent, manipulating time. Now, that doesn't mean that you're back to the future. You know, you're going back 20 years into the past or even 20 minutes back into the past, but there would be a time dilation. There would be you know, and, and and this gets into the cattle mutilations, how they're able to come over and mutilate a cow. And, you know, farmers, I just saw that cow 10 minutes ago walking around and now it's sitting here. And how are they able to do that? Well, if that cow is caught in a gravity bubble, time is going to be a little bit, there's going to be a variant there. There's going to be different. And so what you perceived as 10 minutes might actually have, have ensued over a period of 20 minutes because of this time distortion. And that gets into, obviously, uh, Einsteinian physics and relativity. I've got a quick uh, question for you. Um, this is just a bonus, so make this quick because I want to get on some of these other topics. You mentioned cattle mutilations. That sparked my m memory. I wanted to ask you, what's your quick take on crop circles? Do you think this is something similar to what you just referenced with cattle mutilations? Are these just advanced drones trying to uh, psych us out? What do you think? I have no idea what to think of crop circles. Um, I do think the phenomenon is real. I don't think that all of them can be explained, that all of them can be answered with the prosaic explanations that have been, that have come forth over the years, such as the boards and the ropes. Some of them appear too quickly and are too complex. Although certainly there's many hoaxers out there today because it is not that difficult to make a crop circle. Um, uh, so I, again, I would say that some of these are probably anomalous. Some of them are the result of human activity. Uh, but I have no idea. Any, 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 any more than that, I, I, would, I wouldn't venture to go any further than that because um, there's a famous video of an orb you probably know the reference of the, this orb that's being filmed creating this crop circle. And uh, it's almost impossible to determine whether that video is real or not, because on the one hand, you have the guy who came forward, who was a, who was a, 
a uh, computer graphics guy working for, I believe, the movie industry who said, yeah, I did this as a hoax, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, it appears that the kind of technology, the CGI technology to generate exactly what we're seeing didn't yet exist. So it's I look at stuff like that and I'm just left wondering, scratching my head. I'm not 100 percent sure I cannot make a definitive. I, I cannot formulate a definitive opinion one way or the other. Yeah, we can do it ourselves. Yes. But does human activity account for all the crop circles? The answer, I think, is clearly no. But what does that mean beyond that simple deduction? I cannot say. Um, One thing back to Bob Lazar, because I don't want to get you off on that rabbit trail with crop circles. Sorry about that. Wasn't okay. One one observation, one question to dovetail to the next subject. So one thing that always amazed me about his story was, I think my favorite part is how he's talking about, you know, they're just driving along one day and he looks over and he sees these hangers inside the wall of the, the mountain itself, right? Like built into the mountain. And I don't know if one or all the doors were open, but there was the craft inside. I always loved that, that part of the story. And then element 115 was, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that considered people laughed at him for talking about element 115 and then hasn't that proven that he was actually telling the truth because now they realize this is a real thing. Yes. People laughed at it until Russian scientists were able to produce it in the lab, which they did. And again, it's not a stable isotope of element 115, but it proves that there could be a stable isotope. And how could Lazar have known that he couldn't have? So many aspects of Lazar's story have have been proven to be true. And again, mostly by George Knapp. Um, and anyone who anyone who has, I would say, a let's say anyone who has a strong discernment faculty can watch Lazar, listen to him. And, did, and, 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 and deduce that the man is telling the truth. So uh, he, he's, there's, again, all of the objections to Lazar's story have been answered. Everyone that I've seen. Um, but going back to this reactor, what Lazar demonstrates and what he describes in his book is this, is this situation in which We've been recovering for, for many decades, going all the way back to the 40s, if not the 30s, recovering crash UFOs and their occupants, their biological occupants. And we've been toying with this technology. We've been attempting to reverse engineer it. And we've made very limited progress over all these decades. And part of the reason why we've made this limited progress is because of the compartmentalization. So. And this was one of Lazar's frustrations is you can't one of the things that advances scientific progress is is the free interfacing of scientists in which scientists can come together, share ideas, they can they can work together directly and they can sort of intellectually crowdsource a problem. Well, when you compart when you compartmentalize let's say specifically the the problem of the alien reactor 
and and those scientists who are working on the reactor are not allowed to talk to any other scientists. It has to stay right there between these particular guys who are on this particular base working with this particular reactor. They're not even allowed to talk freely fraternize with the other departments working on other parts of the of the ufo such as the metallurgy and and other kinds of technology navigational systems are not even allowed to interface with those guys so you have this tunnel vision and all you're allowed to do is look at your little piece of the puzzle without being able to step back and 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 and, and appraise the totality of, of, of the technology and, again, interface with the other scientists. So this compartmentalization has actually worked, worked against our efforts to understand and, and reverse engineer the technology. And I've seen this same frustration expressed in some, by some of the other whistleblowers, not Grush and not Graves and not Fravor, but if you go, again, back into the work of Stringfield, for example, you'll see the same sort of frustration coming forth from other people who've worked or who've claimed to have worked inside of these projects. You cannot advance if you, if you are, are not allowed to collaborate with your colleagues. It really hampers the, advance, the technological advancement. And so, um, so that's a very interesting scenario to ponder because then the question would be, well, what have we been able to achieve? And what technologies do we have today that were directly derived from alien components. And anyone who's looked at the subject in depth and done the homework, I think would agree, probably lasers, for one thing, maybe fiber optics. Those two things, I think, are the, are the two that pop up the most, lasers and fiber optics, because the aliens are able to manipulate two things specifically that allow them to through their technology that allow them to, to traverse space the way that they do and to do the other incredible things that they're apparently capable of. They have learned to manipulate light. So there's something about light we don't fundamentally understand yet. Like you can, I think you can actually be transported through light. So there's something about light that they figured out. And then gravity light and gravity and maybe there's an interchange between those two things but but and i think we've 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 made definite advancements in these reverse engineering special access programs and we now understand light on a level that is far apace to what is talked about in our best ivy league colleges, right, in the physics classes of our best Ivy League colleges, and we've made advancements in understanding gravity. Again, that far outpaces anything that our physicists understand about gravity um, on the books, let's say. So these are two things that, that explain when you, when you think about light and what light what you might be capable of doing with light, if you can understand it and harness it, and gravity. If you think about those two things, then you can extrapolate, at least begin to extrapolate a comprehension, a very basic comprehension of how UFOs can disappear, how they make, can make these erratic movements without turning the occupants into mush, 
right, to the G-forces, slamming them against the walls, you can understand things like a very a time dilation and, as I mentioned, cattle mutilations. And you can even begin to postulate how they might be able to open a, a stable wormhole and navigate through a wormhole. All of these things, once you start to really think deeply about light and gravity, are achievable. And you don't have to, you don't have to add into this discussion or thought process anything supernatural, anything paranormal, and you don't even have to contemplate anything extra-dimensional. You can literally just stay within the realm of what might be possible with light and gravity and explain all of the phenomena, or at least most of it, that we see. So that's, a, again, a very long-winded answer to why what I find so fascinating about Bob Lazar's story is you have tangible details. You have these tangible details about the reactor and the way it works and, and, and the kind of details that you really really don't get anywhere else outside of Colonel Corso, as far as I'm aware, um, and Stringfield to some extent. When it comes to crash retrievals, is there a favorite kind of account you have or something that's maybe not super well known that just uh, really intrigues you regarding a crash retrieval or even um, capture of entities? I'm going to reference once again the work of Leonard Stringfield. Um, in his status reports, he talks extensively about crash retrievals. Um, he publishes interviews that he did with people um, who were involved, some of them first-hand witnesses, others second-hand witnesses, in some element of the retrieval process. And um, I don't have a, I wouldn't say I have a, a, a singular case that is my favorite. I, what I enjoy when I read these cases is at least the old ones, at least the ones that go back, let's say, that predate the 90s. They all seem to have the same kind of components to them, which gives them an air of credibility. You're usually talking about a saucer. Sometimes you have egg-shaped or, or rather uh, you can have walnut-shaped. You can have, you know, the, the tic-tac-shaped craft. There's various, various shapes of these things. But usually it's a saucer in these older accounts. And in, in, in so many of them, you have a scenario in which you come upon the crash and you have the hatch open on the saucer and you have various, you have a, a handful of dead bodies, dead alien bodies laying around the craft. Every now and again, one of the aliens might still be alive. Um, but almost invariably, these biological creatures are described in the same way. They're little people. They're, they're three between three and four and a half feet tall. I would say 90% of these cases, three and four and a half feet tall, really between three and four feet tall, big bulbous heads, almond-shaped eyes, really small mouths. They're very spindly. They're, they're, their limbs are very thin. Their fingers are very long. Their arms are longer than, than, than ours. Um, interestingly enough, you're going to find in the details of these crash retrievals, you're going to find that there are uh, several references to how they walk, how the aliens walk, the ones that are able to be ushered out of the crafters and are not dead yet, that they, they seem not to bend their knees. They seem to walk in a very strange fashion. Um, 
you find these intriguing details showing showing up um, in multiple cases. Um, four fingers is one detail. Webbing between a slight webbing between the fingers, which obviously is indicative of an aquatic species or at least an amphibian species, and that might re- explain why their skin is 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 reptilian or really when people say reptilian i think what they mean is it's like a snake skin or it's like a frog skin it's leathery but it's very uh it's not as thick as ours we have like um you know we have like simian skin our skin is 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 pretty thick whereas these creatures appear to have very thin amph- amphibian like skin reptilian skin um and and oftentimes you encounter the this offensive odor being described when there are bodies involved and also just emanating from the craft itself but the offensive odor from the bodies is 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 so very often described as ammonia an ammonia smell in other words like urine but a very very strong ammonia like smell and uh and and i think that's because these entities entities do not have a digestive tract like ours they don't excrete they don't have bowels let's say rather they 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 probably only consume liquids and excrete waste through their skin and so it that excretion is is very is it smells like ammonia it's got that it's it's the the waste product is is being excreted through their skin so when you start to kind of because we have decades now we have dozens and dozens and dozens of stories by from that have been accrued compiled by highly competent researchers mostly the old school guys including Lazar's story including Corso's story <clears throat> And you can extract the details from these stories and, and, and start to chart them. And, and you see a consistency in these details. Now, every now and again, you'll get an outlier. But for the most part, the details are fairly consistent. Most of the time, we're dealing with gray aliens. That's apparent. Most of the time, we're dealing with gray aliens. And there's reason to believe that the craft, not only the, not only the physical craft, but the actual beings themselves piloting the craft are manufactured to spec, are built to spec. And what I mean by that is if you have a particular saucer that's constructed to, to retrieve and process abductees, then that craft is going to be specifically and only designed for that purpose. It's not like a multi-purpose thing. It is the shape of it, the size of it. The design of it, the interior, is all specifically and exclusively designed to fulfill, to perform that one function. And I think we can also extrapolate that same scenario for the biological entities inside the craft. Meaning that in the same way that the physical material craft is built to spec, so these biological material creatures are also genetically manufactured precisely to fulfill their function so you have you have metallurgic spec craft and you have biological spec beings if that makes sense you have craft that is 
specifically designed for one function. And then you have beings who are specifically designed for one function. And that doesn't mean that there's only one kind of craft and only one kind of being. That means that there's a lot of different shapes and sizes of craft based on their function, what they're, what they're built to do. Some of them are massive. They're, for example, let's return to the, the abduction scenario. You have the small craft that go and retrieve the abductee. And sometimes these, not always, but sometimes these abductee are brought to a larger facility on a much larger craft. That is like this abductee processing hub. And it's a, it's a very large craft, right? So you got the small one that's designed to do its function, the large one, its function. And then in the same way, the entities on the craft. So you, you would have a variety of grays, not one kind of gray or two kind of grays, but dozens of grays that are of various sizes and probably, um, probably with varying capabilities, with diverse capabilities, who are specifically engineered to only do certain things. And when you think of it this way, it really begins to, you, 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 it, this, this theory really helps us to embrace, to put our arms around the complexity of the, of the phenomenon. Why so many different shaped crafts? You got the walnut crafts, you got even sometimes like gigantic rectangles, which I believe uh, Graves talked about in the, uh, in the hearings this particular case in which it was like a rectangle. I think it was the size of, of a football field, or I don't remember the exact size he referenced, but it was very large. And it's like a brick with rounded edges, he, he described it. You know, we look at that and we say, we look at the brick craft and we look at the saucers and we look at the walnut-shaped and we look at the tic-tac-shaped ones. And, and, we, and, and, and as an outside, uh, outside observer, we're saying, this doesn't make any sense. Why do you got all these different shapes? Like, why? What's the reason? It doesn't make any sense. But if you begin to understand that they have the ability, and it's easy for them to do this, to design, to, to let's say, almost like three, just think of it as 3D print, okay? To 3D print one of these things to the exact specifications and only to those specifications to fulfill its function, then it actually becomes very it actually seems not not so much confounding, but now it kind of seems quite ingenious when you think about it. It's actually a very ingenious way. There's no waste. There's no wasted components. There's no wasted, there's no excess weight. There's nothing on that craft that is not necessary. And and then if you and then if you transfer your thoughts over to the biological component, you think about the grays in the same same way then it totally explains why there are so many varieties of these things that people see, but are, are basically a gray alien, but, but with minute differences. And it right. looks like, you know, there's, there's just very strange little uh, varieties of these things that, that otherwise wouldn't make sense. But if you think of them in the same way that you think of the, the, the 3D printed craft, let's say, well, then you can also think of almost 3D printed biological beings, genetically engineered creatures to fulfill only certain functions. We're not used to that because we're human beings. We're sentient beings who have the capacity to do all kinds of different things. We, we can be pretty much whatever we want. We are, 
we are multifaceted in our capabilities. It's hard for us to imagine just being created to do one specific thing and only that thing. We don't build like that. Well, not to that extent. And we don't, we don't, we build tools like that, but we don't normally build, we don't produce our, let's say, our, our vehicles in that way. Our vehicles are multi-purpose. Like, for example, my truck is multi-purpose. It's not just created, you know, it's not just built to do, to go and do one thing. Like, like to, to, I got a pickup truck to, to carry gravel. It's multi-purpose because we, as the beings driving it, we, we have, we are multifaceted, multi-purpose beings. But, but we, we shouldn't think like that when we think about the grace. We should actually think about it in a way that's much more calculated. That's much more perhaps utilitarian, Spartan. Everything is designed to fulfill a purpose. Okay, why did I spend all that time talking about that? Because it explains the complexity. And it's that complexity that has confounded people for so long, including myself, until it occurred to me that everything is built to spec. Why do they do that? Because they can. That's why they do it. Because they can. They don't have a society in which these entities are protesting and wanting more freedom and independence. And they're not signing constitutions and fighting wars for freedom. These are biological, cybernetic clones. Right? Just like in the Star Wars movie where the clones are manufactured for one thing, to fight a war. That's it. They're not manufactured to have families and go live lives out in the world or be, be you know, go out and, and be a painter or, or whatever. No, they were, they're manufactured to fight, to be war fighters, and that's it. And so that's the way we have to, if we look at that, that, uh, this phenomenon from, from that angle, I think it starts to bring clarity, especially when you add in the element 115 and the gravity generators, and you start piecing all of these things together, what you start to have is a comprehensible phenomenon, a tangible phenomenon. And you can start to answer all of the questions. And, and this is a little bit of a frustration for me because a lot of these questions have answers that people are still throwing around out there. You know, if the craft are physical, how can they disappear is one I often hear. Doesn't that point to an interdimensional hypothesis or a spiritual or a rather a supernatural hypothesis? The answer is no. It doesn't. It might, but the answer is no. It doesn't have to because what Lazar talked about was when these craft are fully energized. When we know, we know that gravity bends light. So, if you have a craft that's fully energized in its own gravitational field, then what is the light going to do? It's going to do what? It's going to bend around the craft, rendering it invisible, at least from certain perspectives. Right. So. The fact that a craft can disappear before your eyes is not an indication of interdimensionality or that it has a supernatural origin. It's probably just a verification that what Bob Lazar told us was true, that when these craft are fully uh, uh, energized and, and generating this strong gravitational field, that it is literally bending light. And it seems to disappear, when in reality, it's probably still there right? You just can't see it. So, so and, I, and again, I'm not throwing out an inter, 
I'm not throwing out an interdimensional hypothesis, but I'm trying to show people that with all of the details that we have, we can formulate a hypothesis based on known physics that answers most of these questions, if not all of them. And I don't know why I went on this long rant, but I did, and I apologize for it. <laughs> that was an epic rant. Uh, man, a lot of information in there for people to digest. Uh, we could talk for hours about this. I know we're uh, about out of time, and I have to ask you my last question. Could you, for people that might not be aware, because I heard you talking about this somewhere, and I've, you know, I've heard this story for years, but I thought you did a really great job. Maybe it was at BlurryCon. Uh, at some point, you were kind of referencing this or, or telling the story. But could you share Eisenhower's uh, of Eisenhower's supposed meeting in the supposed treaty? Uh, was it back in the fifties? I think it was 1950, I want to say 54 or 56. Now, there are several stories uh, out there about this treaty. The one that I'm most familiar with comes from Behold a Pale Horse by the late Bill Cooper. And uh, Bill claimed to have, he was, in ar he was in Army intelligence, rather Navy intelligence, and he claimed to have come, come across documents confirming that this incident happened and uh, and also just addressing the alien presence in general. And um, so depending on who your source is for this story, the details might change a little bit. But the basic gist of the story is the same. And basically, Eisenhower was in Palm Springs, California, and uh, he was one day whisked, wi allegedly whisked away to this Air Force base. In the Air Force base, the name, the, the name of the base changes depending on who your source is. Let's just say he's, he's hurried away to an Air Force base for this urgent meeting. And there was a cover story that he had to go to the dentist. He had a sudden abscess in his tooth or something like that. And he had to go to the dentist. And that was the cover story. But he wasn't at the dentist's office. Rather, he was on this Air Force base in California, not far from Palm Springs. And the reason why he had to go there was because apparently there was this rendezvous happening between uh, Eisenhower and his staff and some military personnel and a delegation of gray aliens. Now, again, depending on whose story that you're, you're gleaning this from, this information from, the entities who he met with are... are Sometimes it's grays. I've seen it as, as presented as other entities as well. But, but I, I would definitely lean towards it being gray aliens. And so he meets with a delegation of gray aliens. They land in the saucer. They come in. In fact, in fact there's some interesting details um, revolving around this story. One of those details is that they were actually performing at the base. They were performing um, artillery training that day. And they, they, they fired on the craft. So there's this kind of this touchy, touch and go moment where they fired on the craft thinking that this was part of their artillery practice or thinking that it was an actual threat. And, you know, everybody was kind of nervous that we, we might be getting into a war of the world's conflict here. Um, but that didn't happen. The craft landed, the beings came out. They met with Eisenhower in the base and, and somehow through a, through a, translator, but probably just because of the telepathic capabilities of the Greys, they were able to convey the desire for a treaty. 
And that treaty is has various names. I've heard of it as the Grieta contract. Other people have different names for it. And this treaty basically stipulates that the Greys will give us technology, specifically the United States government. They will they will give us technology in exchange, and this is very interesting, in exchange for our permission in regard to the abduction phenomenon. In other words, that we get technology and they get our authorization to abduct our citizens as part of this abduction program, which is very bizarre. Um, and I've, I've, I've read different ufologists, uh, take on this particular incident. And, and I never found a satisfactory answer to why in the world the greys would ever need our permission to abduct people within the bounds of, you know, the, the, the boundaries of our country. And I have an explanation for that. My book birthright, by the way, we don't have time to go into that now, but, but I do give an explanation for that. Um, so they strike this deal and the greys go off with their authorization to abduct. Although they, they did, uh, Eisenhower allegedly wanted to know, he wanted a list of who, who they were abducting. He wanted to know who they were and some other, some other things as well, which the greys never complied with that, apparently, according at least to Bill Cooper. And we did, in exchange for this authorization, we did receive technology. Now, what technology exactly received is anybody's guess. Perhaps the sports model UFO, that uh, the sports model saucer that, that Lazar was working on. We got that saucer somehow, and it was in pristine condition, probably didn't crash. So the question would be, how do you get an alien saucer in pristine condition without it crashing? Uh, my first guess would be an exchange. And wow. perhaps that very, perhaps as a result of that very treaty. Now, nobody obviously knows whether or not that incident actually happened, the Eisenhower incident. Although the best ufologists in the field today and, and some of the, those who've, who've, who've passed away actually believe that that story is credible, which surprised me when I talked to some of these guys. It surprised me that they actually believe the Eisenhower story was true because it's so fantastical. But yet there are reasons, indications, strong indications that it's true. And I happen to believe it was true as well. Um, and it's also important to note that Eisenhower's granddaughter swears that the story is true. So um, there's that. And, and so I am of the impression, as I said, that the story is indeed true. And, and, and if it is true, then the implications are astounding. Obviously, first and foremost, what, what are the greys doing with the abductees that we apparently gave them permission to abduct, or at least to expand their operation, A, and B? Uh, and I think we know the answer to that question. And B, what kind of technologies were we given by the greys? And again, we can speculate that the sports model saucer in the Lazar story is, is, is one of those 
one is one component of that technology exchange. Maybe even fiber optics. Maybe even uh, some component of laser technology. But but we're in the we are we are deep within the realm of speculation. I'm thinking about this. That is a crazy. I mean, crazy story. The Eisenhower supposed meeting and treaty with Stoft to uh, the dentist cover story. Um, man, we covered a lot of territory. And uh, there's so many other topics we could talk about next time. Timothy, thanks so much for your time. Is there uh, anything you want people to know? How can they follow you, connect with you, keep up to date with everything you're doing? Uh, people can follow me on YouTube, my YouTube channel, Timothy Albarino, my uh, Twitter account and Instagram account. Same thing. Handles always the same. Timothy Albarino, no spaces or dots, just Timothy Albarino. My YouTube, my webpage, which I'll be updating shortly. But you can subscribe to my mailing list on my webpage. That's probably the best way to track with me. Um, and I would say that's that's pretty much it. Timothy, thanks again, and we'll do this again in the future. Well, thank you so much, Derek. It's always a pleasure.